0: Our New Testament scripture reading this morning is from Galatians five, twenty-two to 26. Please stand for the reading of God's word. But the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. This is God's word. Anyone been watching any golf? Europe isn't doing too well, is it? I hear there have been, well, if you don't know golf, by the way, there's a Ryder Cup going on nearby, and USA has been doing pretty well. Perhaps you've been watching on TV. I don't watch a lot of TV because I have four children <laughs> and a church, and, uh, but we did watch some TV recently when the Olympics were on, and we got the bunny ears working and all that. And had to move it perfectly into place. Uh, TV can be good sometimes, can it, if there's a movie you like or sports that you're watching or something like that. Uh, a movie that's in my mind from this passage in Song of Songs that's a few years old now, maybe ten or so years old, but perhaps you've seen it, it's called Castaway. by Tom, uh, Tom Hanks was in that, uh, in that movie and uh, it's the story of him um, being marooned on a desert island after a plane crash and, and all of that, and there he is with his soccer ball, which is Wilson. Do you remember that scene when he talks to Wilson? Wilson, what do you think? And it's just the brand name of the, of the soccer ball. He is very lost, and even when he gets back to normal civilization, he, he still somehow feels lost. He hasn't quite recovered his sense of who He is and what life is about, lost. Many stories uh, are about the experience of being lost and then being found. Even Jesus' stories, many of them about this, aren't they? The lost sheep, the lost coin, uh, the lost son. And uh, the reason why our stories, even today, often resonate with that theme of lost and then found. Why is that? It's because all of us, every single person on the face of the planet, is living a real life story ever since Genesis chapter 3 of being lost and needing to be found. And our solutions to this sense of lostness are multiple. Uh, talking of uh, TV shows on this theme, the show a bit more recently called Lost uh, was very popular, wasn't it? It was lo- it was popular not just because it was the way it was written, not because it was on a desert island and had a reality TV echo, but because it resonated with this sort of postmodern narrative of meaninglessness, where we embrace the lostness. The much older shows, like the X-Files did that, where they talked about the truth being out there, but you never found it. Similarly, with Lost, I only watched one program, and the person I think was lost was me. I had no idea what was going on. <laughs> you see, stories that instead, too quickly these days, or too easily reconcile that sense of being lost... Can seem to our culture today to be inauthentic, um, cheesy, j- just not real, because we feel lost. And so, even some religious teachers uh, will tell us less a story now of being lost and then being found, because the finding doesn't feel real. They'll just tell a story of being lost and being real about being lost. Well, the story we have in front of us uh, this morning from Song of Songs chapter 5, verse 2 to chapter 6, verse 3, as we go through this uh, interesting book, uh, is a story of being lost and being found. It's about a marriage relationship, a relationship that seems to lose its sense of intimacy but then finds it again. And because marriage is ultimately a message about Christ's love for the church, it resonates with a need to see our lostness and then be found. By Jesus Himself. This is a profound mystery, but I'm speaking about Christ and His love for the church, as Paul says in Ephesians 5. And so as we get into this passage, if, if you are experiencing some distance in your relationship with a friend or a wife or husband, or some sense perhaps of distance in your relationship with, with God, I want you to get into this story and see how it helps us find intimacy again. Well, first, lost. And this is from chapter 5, verse 2 to uh, verse 16. As you look down there and as we get into it now, it has two parts there. There's the absence, that's verses 2 to Uh, 8. Oh, yeah, I am lost, absence. And then, verses 9 to 16, a longing in the experience of lostness, that that would cease. Absence, verses 2 to 8, longing, verses 9 to 16. Now, I want to remind you, and as we go through this, we have to remind ourselves regularly of this uh, point about literature, that this is poetry. So, uh, verse 7, the uh, lover is not literally walking out in her nightgown and being beaten up by the watchman. <laughs> and then verse 9, uh, the friends do not literally emerge into the bedroom to ask her some difficult questions about her husband. You know. No, it's poetry, my friends. It's always a series of poetic devices here to give us a sense of the experience of a very common phenomenon. In relationships, which is a sense of distance. Very commonly, we go through seasons when we feel distant, even from a wife or husband or a friend, or a sense of lostness. Now, verses 2 to 8, the uh, absence before the longing of lostness, verses 2 to 8 can be interpreted in two distinct ways. And I'm just going to lay those out for you, and you can really choose. Which you prefer The one way is a little more risque. And while the euphemisms are indeed beautiful in the context of a loving marriage, in a multi-generational context, perhaps they're best left euphemistically. Well, let me just outline it for you. It's possible that verses two to eight describe a first night of intimacy for a newly married couple, from the point of view first of an over-eager new husband. And then a willing but rather disappointed new bride. And so, all the language of openings and bolts and feet, uh, which uh, scholars will tell us are, are well known Hebrew euphemisms, all in this context of the Song of Songs could easily suggest this. The man is longing, and then seems distant. And the woman feels, as it concludes uh, verse 8, still faint with love uh, or bruised with love. Longing but disappointed. Now, that's one possible interpretation. The other is to look at it more as a dream sequence. I slept, but my heart was awake. There's a dream going on. And a dream sequence which describes the longing but the sense of absence, a, a distance that often comes, as I say, even into the most cherished and prized relationships, even between a husband and wife at times, even between good friends, even experientially in terms of feeling, even sometimes between our relationship with the Lord himself. Now, in essence, it doesn't matter which of those two interpretations you adopt uh, because both are poetically, it's a poem again, they're poetically describing a feeling of, uh, of distance. So there's absence, verses 2 to 8. And then longing, uh, verses 9 to 16. So the friends, uh, verse 9, a poetic device to indicate the doubts of the lover. Uh, they're not literally there in the bedroom sort of imposing between the wife and the husband, asking a question. They're, they're expressing poetically the internal doubts of, of, of the bride. Uh, she's wondering to herself, you know, could he really be that good if he treated me that way? Is Is he really better than the other options? Is he really that great? Is he really that wonderful? And so she has these internal doubts. And how does she answer these doubts? Well, in a very important way, from verse 10 on to 16, she answers them by thinking. (laughs) She thinks about what makes her man so special. And it starts with his head. And I think it does that because it's not just physical beauty she's describing; it's his attitude, his mind, his personality. And then there are all sorts of images in, in, that uh, you know evoke um, uh, her sense of, "Oh, this really is the guy for me. This is the man for me." Purest gold and doves and milk and jewels and all this. Some of which resonate with us today. Some of which do not. But then, uh, for instance, verse 14, she says, uh, his body like polished ivory. Or as we might say, oh, he has a six-pack set of stomach muscles. Uh, Or perhaps not for some of us anymore, but she thinks he really is great in every possible way. I love this man. He is wonderful. She begins to think. And then verse 16, very importantly, look how it concludes. This is an important reminder I want to emphasize for us. He's not just a lover, verse 16, he is a friend. This is an emphasis that several teachers on this passage recently have have, um, made and I think it is extremely helpful and so I want to emphasize it for us. Rochelle, uh, my wife, when she was uh, a teenager was given this piece of advice by an aunt, or as you would say, an ant. You know, not, not the little thing, but the the person. Um, and um, you understand what I mean now, I think. So uh, an aunt, an aunt, however you say that. By the way, it's a great grace, I think, for me that after all these years, I still cannot imitate an American accent. It is impossible. <laughs> I think it protects me from going too far in all sorts of ways. So... So this, this this relative gave Rochelle this piece of advice. She said, "When you're looking for a husband, you want to look for someone who's going to be your best friend." And this really was very helpful to Rochelle. Gave her a sense of what she was looking for. Someone who's really going to be my best friend, not just romantic, oh, that's fine, but a friend, you see. Well, the same is true for those of us who are married now. It's Not just who we're looking for in prospect, it's who we have in reality now. This is not just an intense romantic relationship, okay, fine, but this is a friend. We enjoy doing things together that friends enjoy doing together, a cup of coffee or talking or just being together like friends enjoy being together. So I just want to emphasize that point. Now, if you are experiencing relational distance between you and your spouse, here then is model for us at least one way to solve it. Think. Think about the things that make him or her better than anyone else. Now, he's so great because of this. She's so great because of that. You might even write a poem about it like uh, she did here. I write poems for my wife, uh, perhaps not as many as I should, or as well as I, I should, but they're certainly not Shakespeare or Bob Dylan. But I, I write them, And uh, I, I'm about as good at fixing things around the home as an elephant is at doing ballet. And so my contribution with words is a way to express my love, perhaps write a poem. But it doesn't just express my love, it also disciplines my love. See, discipline is not just about saying no to things, it's about saying yes to good things. It focuses my mind and my heart. This is what's so great about Rochelle. That is so important in a marriage relationship and in our culture around the world today. I was shocked to discover from a reputable source this week that these days, right now, human trafficking is the second largest global organized crime today. In fact, uh, sexual slavery is a business worth $27.8 billion per year. My friends, the lie of sexual freedom has led to the reality of sexual slavery And so we must discipline ourselves and discipline our culture and realize that sexuality is a great gift, but it must be controlled. And that goes down to our thought life, self-control of love. What's so great? What's so special about your love? It brings you back to why you are together. And so if you're feeling a sense of absence from your wife, your husband, how about this? Maybe even this afternoon, go home and write a poem. About her or about him. It doesn't have to be great. You don't have to put it on your blog. Just write one. Now, that's true for our relationships, our friendships of various and many kinds. But it's also true for our relationship with Jesus. That our thought life about God and how wonderful He is is so important. Uh, Richard Sibbs, who was a great Puritan preacher from the 17th century, has an exposition of this section of of Songs. It goes from chapter 4 to chapter 6, though a lot of it is focused on our passage here. And uh, he calls that uh, exposition in a wonderful Puritan way, Bowels Opened. They had great titles, didn't they, the Puritans? Bowels Opened. But he has a lot of, uh, at times perhaps is a little sentimental, but he has some wonderful insights, and I want to share one with you. It goes like this. He says, we are as we affect, that is, thinking and feeling, affect. We are as we think and feel. We are as we affect. Our affections are, he says, as their objects be, that is, the way we think and feel is ultimately who we are, and that is influenced by where we focus our objects of those affections. And he writes, if they be set upon better things than ourselves, they are bettered by it. Now, by the way, this is why it's important and not just prudish to say, it matters what we watch, it matters what we read, it matters what we think. If we are setting our affections on what is better than ourselves, we are bettered by it. As, we, as our affections are, we are. And he carries on. They're never rightly bestowed, but when they're set upon Christ, that is the secret of all wholeness. A glance of faith saves. It is the gaze of faith that sanctifies. Where you think, where you feel, set upon Christ. And there are many other beautiful things in this world relationally. All these good gifts are given from God for us to enjoy, receive with thanksgiving. So as we thank God for them, we enjoy them. We realize how wonderful they are. And so he says, and upon other things as they answer and stand with the love of Christ. Jesus' love permeates everything. Now, of course, this loss that is answered by this thinking, the loss is or can be immense someone who is single and longs to be married, someone who is married and finds that marriage difficult and is perhaps not experiencing the intimacy for whatever reason that they desire. Emotional distance, a lack of intimacy, is difficult. We are made to, for that kind of intimacy. And with the fallen world in which we live, our lostness impacts our experience in negative ways, profoundly. I know a man who told me that after a particularly painful loss, he realized that a year later he had gone by and he realized that every day that whole year he had wept. Loss. Yes, it is difficult. It is profound. But it's also an opportunity. It allows us to discipline our affections, to set our affections on what is really highest, what is truly best. What is worthy of the preciousness of our heart? We're bettered by it. And see, sometimes God gives us a season of loss in His sovereign purpose to teach us that His love is better than any other. And perhaps the whole journey of life is to teach us that. Well, first, loss. But second, finding. Well, this is chapter 6, verses 1 to 3. And there, the friends come again. And, and once more, let me just remind you, it's poetry. They're not literally there in the bedroom asking the question. They, 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 they are now expressing the more confidence, the greater confidence that the bride has because she has disciplined her thought life, her affections. And so she's beginning now to search for this intimacy. And then verses 2 and 3, suddenly she finds that he's right there with her. So in the uh, analogies here, the garden is the bride herself and she's been looking for this intimacy and there he is, right there. I have a lot of sympathy with this part of uh, the poem, the song here because I myself sometimes find it pretty hard not to get lost when I'm traveling somewhere. I love GPS for that reason. I imagine her, as it were, poetically taking a right down some alleyway, not knowing where she is, taking another right and another right and another right. (laughs) And finally looking at the GPS and realizing, oh, I'm home. Oh, there he is, right there. Actually, the intimacy is just waiting for me right there. Again, it's not literal, the the journey here that she takes in this story, but it's a poetic device to indicate something really profound. And I want to speak this to you and listen up. This is a pastoral important point. When someone finds that they are feeling a sense of absence from uh, his wife or from her husband, See, unless they're a professional counselor or a pastor, they may be in a situation they've never been in before, never come across it before. But when you're privileged to enter into many of those situations, uh, oh, at least several of them, you know there is at least one typical, common, if not standard pattern in those many situations. And that is this, and it's echoed here. The sense of absence, distance, lack of intimacy seems very difficult to solve. It's the watchmen are beating you up. It's, It's very hard to solve. Seems like that. But from the outside, objectively, it often seems relatively simple if the people involved could just but see. There may be all sorts of things that she did or he said. But if they could but see, there he is. There she is, right next to him, coming down into the garden. And the reason why it's right there, even though it seems very distant, is because because what we're talking about really is choice and attitude. And so she has disciplined her mind and her thought life and her affections Oh, the intimacy's right there. This wonderful person, he's right next to me. I remember when Rochelle and I just had two children and uh, we were going for a walk in a wood in the New England countryside. Rochelle was carrying one child in a sling, you know those things that people have that you kind of carry the child in front of you and So one child was in the sling and the other was running happily ahead. It was a beautiful fall day, much like this morning. The sun was shining, the birds were singing, the sky was blue. Dappled sun shone through the trees to speckle the leaf-covered foliage at our feet with drops of gold. We smiled at each other. And then he was gone. We called. We cried out. We ran headlessly at first, and then carefully and organised way, tracing every line of the pathways of this small wood until we had to say, "He was gone, lost." In numbed shock, beginning the internal blame game of guilt: "Was I not? Look. Was I? Did I? What did I do? Is that my? How? What did we do there?" With all that going on internally, we made our way back to the car park to make the phone call. No parent wants to make to the police. Lost my, my, my He's lost. And as we turned the corner to the car, there he was standing by the car. <laughs> Found. Right there. In the garden, if you like, at home, next to the car. Lost, found. See, many couples I meet are making their way despairingly back to the car to call the authorities, even a legal team. When if they could but look up, focus their minds and hearts, there he is, standing by the car. It's darkest before dawn, they say. So often true relationally. There he is, right there, the one I love. Now, this actually has a big picture point, and this influences us far more than we think. All our postmodern theologies are really theologies of lostness, authentic angst, urban grit, And so we are encouraged in multiple ways, in the songs we hear and all that, to embrace who we are. Be real about who we are. Be honest and open about our identity and situation, and that's good. Indeed, in fact, we are far more lost than we can even express. But at the same time, we are far more loved than we could ever dream about or write poetries about or imagine. Christian theologies, you see, are not only theologies of lostness, they're also theologies of being found. Here's uh, one reflection on this theme. When my soul is uh, tired of trying, a reflection I found this week When my soul is tired of trying and my heart is weary of waiting and my eyes are sad of tears and my brain is full of fears, when my muse is dead and gone and my lips sing no song, lost, but then these things are all signs of the need of my times that I should find someone with whom to be. As someone too, and not just a me. So, this experience of being lost, this confusion that comes with our postmodern narratives of chaos, is actually the first step to being found the lost son, the lost coin, the lost sheep, the lost bride. You come home and there he is in the garden waiting for you, looking for you all along. Think of him. Think of how Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son. Even my father's hired hands eat better than this. I will rise and go home. Think of what makes him or her so beautiful, so wonderful. Think of his radiance, his loveliness, his friendship come home to the garden. A parent put up pictures of a teenager caught in the sex trade in a southern country with a simple message on the back of those pictures. Wherever you are, whatever you've done, however lost, come home. And so she does. And there he is, right next to her and waiting for her. And so, would you come home to Jesus this morning, relationally with each other and ultimately with God? Let's pray together. May the mind of Christ, our Savior, Jesus, we pray that we would have your mind on our situations, on our relationships, that whatever is lovely, whatever is noble, we would think on these things. We pray, Father, that you would give us the self-control, the discipline to think about what is so wonderful about the spouse, the husband or wife you may have given us. And we pray, Father, that even with an experience of lostness, perhaps for some this morning, the experience of being found will be much closer than we dared to hope. We pray that you would do this by your Spirit. In the name of Jesus, Amen.